this is Claude Gatebouquet. I am the executive director of uh, African Great Lakes Action Network, and I am here with Mike Brand. I'm the director of advocacy and programs at Jewish World Watch, but speaking uh, on my own behalf. I am also speaking on my own behalf. <laughs> and um, welcome again to our podcast. And uh, last podcast was on South Sudan, and today we'll be talking about the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mike, um, I wanted to start this off. Uh, the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo is long-running. This year is the 20th year, and this month actually marks ex exactly 20 years since the Congo was invaded. But there's actually been some major uh, events recently uh, beyond just the invasion and the uh, violence uh, that has resulted from the war and you know and the initial invasions, um, there has been demonstrations and um, some cracking down, uh, rioting. What is it? What is it all about? Yeah, I mean, I think before uh, we get too far into what's going on today, we probably want to give people a little bit of a background, you know, a little overview on. Uh, what the invasion was about, and, and you know, like you said, the 20th anniversary is coming up. Um, but today, you know, it's it's about the the right to choose their own destiny. You know, for the people of Congo to to choose who their government is and who they're governed by. Um, you know, something that they haven't really had the opportunity to have um, in in quite some time. Yep. You want to give people so, a little bit of a, a quick overview of some of the back the background to um, you know what the 20th anniversary is all about, um, so that we can put right. things in context. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because I think what's happening today is actually a result of what you know of this long-running conflict and um, um, Congo, the DRC, was invaded when it was still Zaire in 1996, um, and it was invaded by Rwanda and Uganda, as well as many of the neighboring countries jumping into that war. And uh, Rwanda and Uganda went into the Congo um, with uh, at least the official reason. The claim was they were pursuing um, those who committed genocide in Rwanda. There were approximately 2 million refugees right at the border of Rwanda, and uh, Rwanda wanted to secure its borders. Um, however, this conflict... With, Go ahead. You know, with the, the narrative, as you know, obviously there's, there's some contention around you know, the, the motivations for Rwanda and Uganda um, and potentially the, the changing motivations from the first day that they invaded to you know, staying thereafter. Um, you know, I think it is important to mention to everyone about the fact that a lot of the genocidaires were among the 2 million refugees that were in the Congo. Um, and unfortunately, many of them were allowed to cross the border with all of their weapons, and they did wreak havoc 
in a lot of the refugee camps in the early days um, after fleeing across the border in 1994. Yep. And um, so when the invasion took place, um, it pretty much turned into an all-out war very quickly. Um, of course, Zaire had been uh, bankrupted by the long time dictator Mobutu Sesseko, who had um, uh, he had amassed massive wealth in um, in person for 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 him personally, and uh, he had Zaire basically had no infrastructure. Uh, soldiers were going for months, and, and and civil servants were going for months without getting paid, and it was just really easy and ripe for an invasion. And uh, the invasion that started out as a um, chasing in pursuit of uh, the genocidaires uh, from Rwanda quickly turn into major violations of human rights. Uh, the refugee camps were indiscriminately shelled and uh, in the end nearly 200, over 200,000 people were reported missing and to this day they have not been found and are assumed to have died. Uh, and those are just the people who were um, in the refugee camp and then uh, beyond that, uh, this, you know, the initial invasion was in 1996, um, and it installed a new president. Mobutu was kicked out of power. New president, uh, Laurent Kabila, was installed and put in, in place, and he, um, in turn, fell out with his sponsors from Rwanda and Uganda, who installed him into power, and they turned around and invaded the Congo again to remove him. And that war drew in multiple other countries. Um, Rwanda and Uganda were on one side fighting against the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, Zimbabwe, Namibia, and Angola came to the aid of the DRC and Lauren Kabila. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about, you know, what what were the motivations there? You know, like the original motivations in, you know, 94, 96, you know, the invasions across the border, um, you know, like you said, with the genocidaires and, and everything else that was going on on the border. But after they fell out, or one of Uganda fell out of, you know, um, cooperation with the world Kabila, um, you know, many would say they didn't want to leave because of their access to... DRC's riches, and especially the eastern region. Oh, no question. Uh, when you read uh, the reports, a lot of the either investigative reports or um, UN reports from the years when the invasion took place, <coughs> um, 97, 98, uh, and then even later, um, much later in the early 2000s, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, where um, it actually lists the amount of export of coltan and diamond and um, other minerals uh, 
you can see that um, there was that economic reason for um, the occupation of the DRC by uh, Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, I mean, the export, the amount of exported minerals jumped exponentially. Also, in those reports, um, it says whenever they attacked an area, took over a city, um, they would go right to the banks. They would go to the stock of uh, goods and uh, valuables like you know, um, coffee, um, plantations, not plantations, but where it was stored for export, uh, minerals. They would wait until um, the mining was completed or there was a good amount of uh, mines um, that had been worked, and they would go and take over those areas and grab the whatever was out there and take it for themselves. And those, that was the, usually the first step. It was going and um, taking as much as they could. Uh, and this is documented in the UN expert uh, reports of um, uh, 2001, 2002, and 2003. Um, you can also see some of the companies, multinational companies, that were involved in this smuggling of um, uh, minerals from the Congo. So this was a big motivation, and, and Mike, I'm glad you um, you spoke about that because there was a big economic incentive for all the countries that were involved, but especially for um, um, Rwanda and Uganda. There was a reason why they didn't want to lose control of the government in Kinshasa. And, Definitely, uh, and I think you know most people may be familiar with the term conflict minerals, which, you know, for years has been uh, one of the main topics of discussion when you talk about the DRC. Um, I think, you know, the two things that most people hear about when they are referencing the DRC is conflict minerals and, unfortunately, rape and, and sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and, you know, I think it's really, you know, important that people understand what's conflict minerals and, and the motivations behind Rwanda and Uganda to be involved in you know, the second invasion and all the subsequent um, engagements over the years with, you know, there was support for rebel groups and, you know, both alleged and almost, you know, without a doubt in certain groups, um, all of their engagement there for the mining of all of these conflict minerals that are used in all of our electronic devices and especially with the technology boom that happened in the early 2000s with, you know, cell phones, laptops, tablets, all of these things, PS2, um, Xbox, et cetera, um, it, really, it really changed the landscape of, of the conflict. It's amazing how every one of us is connected to the Congo, Mike, um, through our cell phones, which are usually a foot away or not even a foot away from our bodies. Um, or laptops or flat screen TVs and other things. And a lot of people, a lot of us, do not know that um, we're actually consumers of such uh, minerals. Uh, but again, our appetites um, and 
you know, products that we consume are also, some of it has, or a lot of it actually has, uh, come from the Congo because 60% of uh, coltan deposits are found in the Congo. Um, so that, you know, fast forward, you know, so there was the initial invasion in 96, and then, you know, that, in, that was pursuing uh, the genocidaires, but um, also pursuing the removal of Mobutu, the long-term dictator of the Congo who had been in power for 32 years, um, installed Lauren Kabila, uh, who then turned around and fell out with his uh, Rwandan and uh, Ugandan supporters, uh, or uh, basically, you know, the people who installed him into power, and they invaded him um, again because of economic reasons. Um, and uh, in 2001, he gets assassinated, and quickly his son uh, Joseph Kabila is installed in power, and he is still the president of the Congo 15 years later. And um, Today, the Congolese people are struggling to, uh, for him to leave power since he's already served his two terms um, that are constitutionally allowed, and there is supposed to be an election this November, but the government seems to be pushing to uh, not have that election. Um, I should mention that um, the DRC has had elections twice since um, Joseph Kabila came to power, first time in 2006, and second time in 2011. And the 2006 election was praised as um, actually a good election, and the first one in the history of the Congo since the assassination of its first prime minister, the first democratically elected leader, Patrice Lumumba, uh, who was uh, uh, elected prime minister after independence? Um, it was um, it was a great time in 2006 in the Congo because um, even though it was a contentious election, it it was it it was a fair it was fair by all accounts. Uh, and then in you know as the years went by and again the violence continued in the east, um, you know. Um, Dynamics changed in the region, and um, Kabila became less and less popular. And in 2011, the election was, according to many sources, internal and external, uh, a rigged election. Um, he won again. Um, and now in 2016, we're back again at the elections. And... Uh, yeah, international observers who were there in 2011, you know, by and large said that the, the vote wasn't fully counted by all the different polling stations, and there were some shady things that were going on. Um, some even say that um, the majority of the, the vote was in favor of the opposition candidate at the time. Uh, there's no proof of that fully, uh, but it was very clear that it was a very contentious election, to say the least. And, and meanwhile, um, the violence never really stopped in the East, right? 
um, after the uh, 2011 election, there was the um, prior to the 2011 election, there was a rebel group, um, the CNDP, which was very strong, and you know, for two years, um, the last two years of its existence existence had wreaked havoc and taken over vast territories of the Congo in the eastern part of the Congo. Um, and then their leader, Lauren Kunda, uh, was, who was actually uh, sponsored by Rwanda, ended up arrested by Rwanda. Uh, the CNDP continued, um, but uh, without the leadership of Nkunda, it wasn't um, as strong as he had previously been. And then the 2011 election took place with all the contentions that took place. People uh, who demonstrated were shot in the streets. Uh, I believe there was more than 40 people who were killed um, during those demonstrations. And then in 2012, another rebel group, uh, the M23, rose. And um, UN experts uh, reported that this group was trained, sponsored, um, provided with logistics and everything by um, leaders of the Rwandan military, including the uh, Minister of Defense, uh, the, an advisor to the president who is also a general, Jack Nziza, and uh, the military chief of staff of Rwanda. Um, this rebel group was so swift and strong, became so fast and furious that they took over, they had displaced nearly a million people in the space of three months. And uh, I don't know if you remember, Mike, the push here in the U.S. for accountability, um, or at least for the U.S. to... Um, allow the reports to be released um, at the UN and yep. also for the US to impose sanctions. Uh, you remember that period? Yeah. And the, the amount of uh, advocacy that went into getting some sanctions put in place. Um, the UN also you know, stepped up and they added a brigade that would actually engage the rebels and they included um, um, Tanzanian, South African, and Malawian troops who pushed that rebellion back. And um, there hasn't been an, any a real major one since. Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, what's interesting about you know, both of these groups, you know, I think it speaks volumes to the larger issue of different rebel groups that exist in eastern DRC. You know, I think first, you know, you, you mentioned the CNDP with Laurent Nkunda, but, you know, for everyone who's, um, you know, listening in, you know, the CNDP stood for obviously the, the difference between the French and English translations and, and the acronyms, but the National Congress for the Defense of the People. And I think just the name alone and, and the reasoning behind the organization of the CNDP, um, at least the stated objectives, right, to protect Tutsis who were living in eastern Congo from the FDLR, which were the leftover 
um, genocidaires from the Rwandan genocide in the eastern region that were still carrying out atrocities uh, in that part of the, the country as well. But like so many of these different armed groups, you know, the CNDP as well as the FDLR and others, you know, started at, with certain objectives, but quickly those objectives came to be looting and pillaging certain regions, carving up territory that they can control. And like you said, once Nakunda was removed, um, M23 came up and had the same exact objectives. And they were, you know, like all those reports started to show, very heavily supported by Rwanda. Uh, and I think the real big push, you know, for many years, Rwanda had been, like you see it in so many different pieces of writing, the darling of the, the Western world. Uh, but when M23, like you said, were so fast and furious and took over Goma, you know, the provincial capital of North Kivu, uh, I think that really was a wake-up call for a lot of the Western countries that had been supporting Rwanda for so many years, including the U.S. and the U.K., who finally started speaking out against Rwanda's role in Congo specifically with their support to M23 once, I think, the evidence was overwhelming. And it really shifted the balance. You, know, you were mentioning the Force Intervention Brigade, which was the first time that the UN had created a force that would go on the offensive and actually seek to fight and defeat a rebel group. Usually the UN sends in peacekeepers and they're there as uh, you know, objective third party to kind of act as a buffer zone between two groups that are signing a peace agreement or had signed a peace agreement and ensuring that there is a uh, ceasefire and that the two groups are not violating that ceasefire. But this force intervention brigade was armed, you know, to the teeth. They had attack helicopters, they had armored personnel carriers, they had a lot of different uh, weapons and tactics at their disposal that usually UN forces don't see. And, you know, to their credit, the Congolese army as well, I think, really for the first time in a while, had a shakeup within the army and they, they started, you know, A, paying their people. They removed a few commanders who were um, found to be less than helpful um, on the front lines. They took out, you know, alcoholism is a big problem for a lot of the soldiers as well as corruption. They, you know, cycled in some of the soldiers and really were a good partner, at the time at least, with this force intervention brigade. And simultaneously, I think, because of all the pressure that Rwanda was facing, they stopped providing support or at least lessened their support to M23. And all three of those things combined really helped to defeat the rebel group. Yeah, that is correct. It was a combination of things. And, um, you know, it's interesting how even the players that were sent to be neutral, um, you know, the UN soldiers prior to the Force Inter Intervention Brigade um, were taking part in the trading of the minerals. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it and was, the, and uh, the rape and sexual and gender-based violence. I mean... Right. They were not innocent by any means. It, it was really amazing that um, 
I guess really it's it's not necessarily right to think that just because someone is wearing a blue helmet, it makes them honorable. But it got to the point where it was so cynical that UN soldiers were saying, non Kunda, you know, Kunda is uh, General Loren Kunda who was leading the CNDP. They were saying, non Kunda, no job, meaning that if there was no CNDP, there was no rebel groups, there was no violence, in the eastern part of the Congo, they would no longer be deployed. Um, there were reports. Uh, I remember seeing a, a TV report. I can't remember um, <clears throat> who it was, but they had, you know, um, soldiers, UN soldiers, um, trading minerals, you know, through the borders of Rwanda and Uganda. Um, there were contours that were well, that they were dealing with. It was it was really amazing. It's it's amazing how many people have taken part in this, and even just the general people. Well, they weren't even just they weren't even just you know helping to smuggle uh, minerals across the border and then getting paid for it or something. You know that that would be bad enough. But there were cases where UN soldiers were trading their arms for minerals. Right. Which is just completely absurd. Yep. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, the worst part of the, the conflict, um, to me, is um, or, and has been the gender-based violence and the use of um, child soldiers and sexual slaves. Um, and it's just, you know, any and every one of these um, rebel groups or militias that came around, they all did it. And, um, you know, the Congolese people are, to their credit, a resilient people. Um, and they are, um, they have found a way, you know, in spite of all of these things, to continue to push forward, to try to take, you know, their destiny in their own hands. And I think that was the the initial comment that Mike made, which is related to the the protests that are taking place all over the country, from the west in the capital in Kinshasa all the way to the east in Goma. Um, uh, however, a lot of people have you know, really suffered and, and, and died. There's been massacres in Benin for the last year and a half. Uh, yeah. and, uh, well, I think we'd be remiss to not mention, you know, obviously the violence in the eastern region has been horrific since, you know, the early days in, in the mid-90s um, and continues in certain regions like you were just mentioning in Benin. But to, to fully understand, you know, why people are protesting Kabila, um, not only in the capital, but in the east, you know, across the country, it's not only because of the violence in, in the eastern part of the country. You know, that's a, a small piece of it. The bigger piece of it as well is the massive corruption that has happened over the years in which Kabila and his inner circle have become extremely rich and wealthy from selling off, you know, huge mining deals to large multinational corporations, and they make 
quite a bit of money from these deals while the people in the region, you know, both suffer from violence and the fact that the security sector that's run by Joseph Kabila can never actually have any successes in that except for, you know, rooting out the M23. But in Katanga, in the southern province, there's these giant mining contracts that have been sold off over the years that have, you know, benefited a select few groups of people, um, select few individuals. And the country, you know, is extremely underdeveloped outside of Kinshasa, outside of the capital um, in, you know, the western region of the country. In the eastern region of the country, there's, there's lacks of, you know, of roads, lacking, you know, drinkable water. Um, and you see when you go um, to Goma or to Bukavu and, and the regions in north and south Kivu, uh, there's people, you know, there's a lot of NGOs that are working there. There's a lot of local organizations that are working and really filling the role of what the government should be able to do. Uh, but they've been, you know, looted and, you know, the violence over the years and the lack of infrastructure, the lack of investment, you know, has caused that region to just never fully develop the same way that Kinshasa has and certain other regions and certain other individuals have been able to line their pockets. Yep, and you know, um, just recently when uh, the Panama Papers were um, released, it showed uh, the president's twin sister, you know, having uh, or being uh, involved in those uh, companies that were um, in the smuggling or the money laundering that was documented in those Panama Papers. Um, and, you know, um, there is a film you sent me um, a few years ago, Mike. You may not remember sending it to me, but um, it's called Crisis in the Congo. And... Um, it gives it's it's a short film it takes 25 minutes and it shows really um all of the faces of um what's happening in the Congo and one of the people interviewed in that documentary um it's called uh crisis in the Congo uncovering the truth someone says why is the richest country in the world, and this is in terms of natural resources, why are people so poor that they're living hand to mouth? And and I think you just, you know, the corruption, you know, that you talked about has been one of the main reasons why people in the Congo are living in such uh, bad conditions. Definitely. Uh, Speaking of films, there's another amazing film that's, you know, the full-length documentary that's out called When Elephants Fight, uh, directed and shot by a, a friend of mine um, and being promoted by Stand With Congo campaign. And that film really goes into depth of the history of Congo and, you know, back to the days uh, before Mobutu, um, Congo Independence uh, and Lumumba up through the both Kabilas till today and talks a lot about the corruptions and these big mining deals and everything. And, you know, it's the old saying, um, you know, the name of the film, When Elephants Fight, is connected to the old saying, when elephants fight, it's only the grass that suffers. 
And for many people in the eastern region especially, you know, that's how, how they feel. They feel as though various external forces have come to their country, raped and pillaged their, you know, natural resources and the people, and, you know, they don't see any benefit from this except for violence. And that's obviously not a benefit. That's the only thing that they see, you know, on their side of things because they're not getting any of the benefits from the minerals, from the the lucrative sources that are there, you know, the tin, tantalum, tungsten, gold, copper, diamonds, all the different minerals that are there. And like you said, the richest country in the world, it's, what's the estimate up to? It's like $34 billion or tri- I mean, trillion dollars. Has, yep, $34 trillion. Mm-hmm. Which is insane when you think about it. And then if you go to that region of the country and see how underdeveloped it is. Yep. Um, well, today, the people of the Congo being um, a resilient people, really um, amazing. Uh, and, and from a personal perspective, uh, I can speak to their generosity because um, I lived in the Congo as a refugee um, when I escaped the genocide in a war in Rwanda in 1994. And the people, the people were so nice and so generous. Even when they had just very little water, they would share it with, you know, with me or others or other refugees. Um, the only problem with the police, you know, the, um, the, the unpaid, you know, soldiers who were, you know, taking advantage of, you know, anyone with positions. But the people of the Congo were so hospitable and so nice. And, um, and today, you know, um, they continue to show their resilience in terms of resisting and demanding change and demanding um, to take uh, charge and to take their destiny in their own hands. And that's what we have today. Uh, and it has implications. So we talked about how we um, are connected to the Congo as consumers but we're also connected to the Congo as taxpayers because um, the U.S. government is a donor nation to the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is also a donor nation to, uh, and I don't even know if that it's called donor or just a contributor to the U.N. It's also a donor nation to Uganda and Rwanda all of whom, those four, um, three countries and the UN, um, the UN soldiers, have all been involved in the, um, you know, what's, you know, the devastation of of the Congo. And um, I think we can, and Mike, help me here, or let me know if you disagree, but we as tax-paying citizens here in the U.S. can help the people of the Congo who are demanding change and who are, you know, uh, putting their lives on the line, uh, who are being brutalized while they protest and demand change and of course, there is violence coming from the protesters also. Uh, but I think we can support their pursuit of 
taking matters in their own hands and taking their own destiny in their own hands by demanding um, accountability, at least at a minimum, as taxpayers from uh, the United States, and that the United States would take steps to hold accountable the government of the DRC and, um, and anyone else that destabilizes the Congo. Um, so, um, Mike, I don't know if you disagree with that, but I think uh, we can play a role in supporting the people of the DRC. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a few things that the U.S. government has done in the past. Um, Dodd-Frank, Section 1502, the, the conflict minerals legislation, you know, that connects all U.S. publicly traded companies that potentially or that they know are sourcing minerals from the DR Congo or the surrounding region, uh, they have to do due diligence reports and show uh, how their minerals, you know, the minerals that they're putting in their own products, whether that's computers or tablets, like we were talking about before, phones, TVs, etc., um, how their minerals could be contributing to conflict and could be supported by various rebel groups in the region, various armed groups uh, in the region. And I think that was a huge piece of legislation. Um, you know, it still is, has some pushback today, but that's you know, just showing how we're connected to Congo and what the U.S. government can do. Uh, but recently, what the U.S. government has been doing and been, been saying they're going to do more of, and a lot of advocates have been pushing for is targeted sanctions on key individuals that are part of President Joseph Kabila's inner circle. Um, targeting these individuals with financial sanctions, travel bans, etc., sends a very strong message that you know, the U.S. government and potentially other partners, um, if they join on board with these sanctions as well, uh, do not believe what they are doing is right and they're going to take whatever measures they can to in some way inflict financial and, you know, travel freedoms for them, um, some harm on them in the little bit of leverage that we have left. Uh, you know, targeted sanctions are a very strong tool, um, but unfortunately, at least in my opinion, uh, they'll only have any kind of real long-lasting impact if, other international actors join on board. It can't only be the U.S. that are targeting individuals with sanctions. Many of these guys don't have a lot of assets in the U.S. They don't have, a, you know, they're not traveling to the U.S. on a regular basis. Um, but if regional governments and more likely the European governments, where a lot of these individuals have assets, do target individuals within Kabila's inner circle with sanctions, it could have a real impact. Um, unfortunately, I think we're a little late to the game, you know, in that the elections, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a little bit, but, you know, elections are scheduled for November, like they are here in the United States, and by, I think it's December 23rd, Joseph Kabila has to vacate the office of the presidency according to, you know, the law. And, that's, that's coming up very, very soon. You know, we're already in October, and unfortunately here in the United States, our own vacuum of power is going to 
be a, a, a little bit of a hindrance to some action that can happen while it's likely that the, you know, the, the DRC is going to explode. The timing yep. is, is, is quite unfortunate. Uh, I agree with you. And, and I think it's... Um It's it's important to note that uh, when the U.S. takes steps, a lot of other countries follow. Um, so we're talking about these targeted sanctions, um, and I think those are. I agree with Mike that those are very, they're great tools to use, um, and they can serve a big purpose. And I think um, other international players can follow suit in a similar fashion as they did uh, previously uh, with the M23 related sanctions on uh, Rwanda. The trend was started by the U.S. The U.S. withheld $200,000 from the Rwandan government. That is not even 1%. That is 10% of 1% of the disclosed amount that the U.S. gives to Rwanda. That is outside of any military support. $200,000, the salary of a, a, an executive, or maybe not even an executive, depending on what part of the U.S. Uh, you're in. So peanuts. However, when the U.S. did that, other countries followed. The U.K., Holland, Denmark, Germany, and a bunch of other countries, they follow suit. And that domino effect was one of the key um, events that happened and one of the key things that led to uh, the dismantling or the defeat of the M23. So uh, I think it's important to, to, to remember that. If we can get the U.S. to act and be consistent and actually be serious and for it to not be just simply lip service, um, there is a chance that other international partners and players will also follow suit. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's some that would argue, you know, while the, the sanctions that the U.S. has levied against certain individuals may not, you know, put Kabila off course of hold, you know, holding on to power, um, it, they are having some impact. And the, you know, the sanctions against um, Kayama, the Kinshasa police chief uh, or police commissioner, uh, you know, some point to those sanctions and, and just showing that the U.S. is paying attention very closely to um, Congo as a reason for protests earlier, not the most recent round of protests, but some protests when um, opposition leader Tshisekedi came back to Congo, there was no violence. And some point to, while there has been, you know, quite significant violence in recent days, the fact that the violence hasn't been so explosive on the side of the, the police and, and the National Army, partially because certain leaders are a, a little wary about um, ordering, you know, why widespread violence, given the fact that the U.S. has sanctioned certain key individuals already. 
Agreed. Agreed. So, um, you know, I think just, you know, real quick, it's important to know, like, that the, both in the House and the Senate, there has been resolutions introduced um, calling for additional sanctions and additional pressure. So, it's not just a few individuals with the administration that are paying attention to this. You know, members of Congress are also very closely paying attention. Certain members of Congress are very interested in, you know, a peaceful transition of power in Congo um, for nothing else but because that's what you know, the majority of the people want. Um, and the Senate resolution um, 485 that was introduced by Senator Flake actually passed the Senate. Um, there's a, still a House resolution that has not passed that was introduced by um, Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. And, you know, individuals that are listening that are interested can, you know, call on their representatives to, you know, potentially move that, you know, resolution along and reach out to the administration. You know, it's really the administration, President Obama's um, administration, that can direct additional sanctions um, based on certain executive orders and, you know, powers and privileges of the executive branch. Okay. Um, so I think um, to wrap up this conversation that just like our South Sudan conversation, it's always, there's never enough time, right? Um, <clears throat> but we'll continue to come back to these conversations and, and have guests and everything. Uh, but just wanted to one more time, you know, specifically remind the audience, you know, what they can do to support what's happening with the, what the people on the ground in Congo are doing. Uh, yeah. Would you like to share a little bit of that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think the, the first thing, like I said already, you know, reaching out to your members of Congress directly, uh, but also reaching out to the administration uh, is really important. Um, if you, you know, this is like where my, my two hats kind of overlap, but on action.jww.org, uh, which is the organization that I work for, our action site, um, there's an action that you could send a letter directly to your representative. It'll find out, you know, you put in your zip code and your address, and it'll tell you who your member of Congress is, and you could send them a, a message uh, specifically about the, the piece of legislation that's in the House. Um, but I think it's just important, you know, that people reach out on their own. You could write, you know, messages to the president um, via the White House website, and, you know, if enough messages are, are, are you know, reached, people do read that and people do respond. Um, I think it's also just really important that people who are listening talk about this issue. I mean, just getting out there and telling people that you talk to you on a daily basis what's going on in Congress today, um, what the implications are, and why it matters is really important. You know, in, in this country, at least, we, we hold the power of the vote to be, you know, like the ultimate freedom, right, to, to choose your own destiny and your government. And that's what the people in Congo are fighting for right now. And unfortunately, it looks like President Joseph Kabila is going to deny them that right. So it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. I yep. think you have an event coming up as well, you know, that people can get involved in. 
That, that's right. Um, just before that, I, I couldn't agree with you more um, about you know the importance of keeping the conversation going because the Congo, the conflict in the Congo has been the deadliest conflict since World War II. More than 6 million people have died. Half of those people are children under the age of five. And it's the most underreported conflict. And so, you know, social media and any amount of sharing the stories and raising awareness on the Congo is extremely important. And that leads me to the next uh, thing. Uh, as Mike mentioned, uh, we have an event coming up on October 15th this year in two weeks, two Saturdays from now. It's in New York City, and it's at ThoughtWorks. Uh, the address is 99 Madison Avenue. 99 Madison Avenue, and the zip code is 10016. And um, it's going to be an all-day teaching conference event that has a mixture of keynotes, film screenings, and panels. Um, it's going to cover everything from the planning of the invasion to gender-based violence to accountability and lack thereof, uh, the U.S. role in the region. Um, and, and we're going to have some great speakers, both from the region and also from the U.S. And um, uh, we've got wonderful speakers um, such as um, or participants such as Shaka Sali of uh, Voice of America's uh, Straight Talk Africa, who's broadcast all over the world. Um, we've, got, we've got people like uh, Leanne DeRuz, who is um, who runs. Uh, the Pansy Foundation in the U.S. that supports the Pansy Hospital in South Kivu, which works with um, rape survivors. Um, we have Many got people may know Dr. Dennis McRae, who runs the Pansy Hospital, who's uh, been a Nobel Prize uh, nominee for many years and is an amazing, larger-than-life, tremendous individual that I've been very fortunate to, to meet when I was in Congo last year. Actually, I was in Congo exactly a, a year ago in, in a couple of days. You met Dr. McCraigan, Mike? Yeah. Very fortunate. I want to I be like you when I grow up. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think he is such a hero. He's an idol to me. You know, someone that is not only restoring bodies, but is restoring hope. Um, and again, that just shows the resilience of uh, the people of the Congo, I mean, the survivors uh, that are, you know, coming over to the Pansy Hospital and going back and, you know, helping their community. It, it's amazing what one person can do. And and that's what we're asking everyone that's listening to do something. Doesn't have to be as big as Dr. Mukwege. He's amazing, um, but you are also amazing. Just take a small step. You know, uh, do one or two of the things that we asked. 
Uh, and please do join us um, for that event. You can find more information on congoevents.org. Um, and uh, it's going to have uh, the full program. is going to be uh, published soon. And uh, it's also going to be live streamed. So you are able to come and go as you please uh, during that day. But you can uh, definitely tune in. And all of that information is going to be on congoevents.org. Mike, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I mean, I think you know, it's um, just people need to know that what's going on in Congo matters. And you know, these individuals are you know, just trying so hard to fight for their right to run their own country, to choose who their leaders are, to put their country on a better path, to root out corruption and violence. And, you know, I personally know a number of people who are in Eastern Congo right now, you know, Congolese who I'm very fortunate to call you know, friends. And it's uh, in the next few months, things are going to likely get worse and worse. And so we definitely need to be raising awareness and, and pushing not only our government, but the United Nations, the EU, et cetera, to do as much as they can to ensure that uh, Joseph Kabila does the right thing and steps down and, you know, the country allows for peaceful democratic elections so that, you know, the country doesn't have to go through um, a spiraling cycle of violence that would likely um, cost a number of lives and, and be something that would go on for years. Is it fair to advise our audience that when they go to the link that you sh you just shared with them, um, when they write their letters, uh, the direct letters, um, to ask that if the Congolese government does not hold elections and if the elections are held but they're not free and fair, that uh, the U.S. government continues to turn up the sanctions um, and, and continue to target and target more and more of the leaders of the Congo? Definitely. That's what the letter already kind of says, um, but people are free to add whatever they like to the letter, and you know, that's what the, the legislation asks for as well. Um, and you could also you know, reach out to your senators if you want to. Uh, obviously, like I said, the, the Senate resolution has already passed the Senate, but you know, thanking them for taking action is, is just as important as uh, asking them to take action. Well, Mike, it's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you again and um, you know sharing our thoughts with our audience. And as you said previously, we're both advocates at heart, so we're always demanding action and asking for you know someone to do something, even if it's very small. It can go a long way. Definitely. Thank you, and okay. uh, I look forward to our next call. You know, I was just in Washington, D.C., rounds and rounds of meetings on a lot of different issues. You're going to be in New York soon. I think uh, our next uh, conversation will be quite interesting. I can't wait. 
Thank All you right, so much, well, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Claude.